This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Saviors and Survivors, Darfur, Politics, and the War on Terror, our guest today, Mahmoud Mamdani, looks at the crisis in Darfur within the context of the history of Sudan and examines the world's response to that crisis. Mamdani is Herbert Lehman Professor of Government and Professor of Anthropology at Columbia University and the author of numerous books including Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, America, The Cold War, and The Roots of Terror. Mahmoud Mamdani, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you today? Um, I think I'm fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Haven't taken uh, account of it yet. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I've I've just been uh, on a book tour, so you know it takes its toll. Oh, really? Well, thanks so much for coming on with us. After after that, we appreciate it. Pleasure. pleasure. It's a wonderful book, and and before we get started into the the some, well, maybe controversial questions. I'd like to ask you, uh, what forces brought about the current situation, the unsettling situation that are uh, going on in Darfur today? What, I know it's a long <laughs> and uh, complicated question, but just a, a no. quick summary. Or a, No, you know, I, I, I realized that uh, uh, the conflict in Darfur had begun before the present government came into power. Uh, that it had unfolded in several phases, and it began in 1987-89, which was the first phase. Um, and as I talked to people and read the literature, it became clear to me that before 87, the nature of conflict was very different. It was between neighbors. It was easily settled. Um, in 87 began a conflict uh, marked by such unparalleled brutality and its scope expanded all over Darfur um, that it just marked a turning point, a kind of a new uh, and a terrible historical period. Uh, the reasons for this compl- conflict, like any conflict, um, are, are, are several. Uh, there's a deep background cause which has to do with uh, how Britain partitioned Darfur. Um, when, when the British came in, uh, Darfur had, uh, had a sultanate, a kingdom, for several centuries. And as the king used, expanded his kingdom, he gave out land grants to his notables so that individual land tenure developed alongside group tenure. When the British came in, they simply abolished all individual tenure, divided all land be- as tribal land, But in this parceling out land between tribes, they decided that they would give more land to settled tribes because they considered settlement as akin to civilization. And they decided to give no land to tribes which were not settled, which meant the camel nomads who go around for 12 months of the year and have no villages whatsoever. The immediate cause was the drought and desertification. The Sahara expanded 100 kilometers south over 40 years. So by the mid-1980s, it was pushing the northern nomads down south and began this classical ecological conflict over the best land. The final contributory cause was Darfur is neighbor to Chad. 
And in Chad, there was a civil war going on ever since independence in 1960. But in the mid-80s, that war became incorporated in the Cold War. The two sides in the Cold War supported the two sides in the civil war. So Reagan's America, France, and Israel armed one side. Gaddafi and the Soviet Union armed the other side. Whoever was in power was in Jamena in Chad. The opposition crossed the border into Darfur, and that's where they armed, organized, and from there they attacked. There was a spillover of the civil war into Darfur. So by the mid-'80s, when there was no water in Darfur, Darfur was awash with weapons. And that's what accounted for not simply the intense fighting, but the fact that it was waged with such weaponry that, that the cost and destruction was unparalleled. Now let me. I want to just ask you to clarify one thing you just mentioned, and that is, the so the, echo, the the encroachment of the desert into this area uh, was caused directly by the settlers or the settled tribes. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. I'm what I'm saying, no, no. The the expansion of the desert is 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 more of an effect of global ecological uh, climate change. Okay. Uh, its effect was to push the, uh, the, the, the nomads down south, mm-hmm. and they headed for the best land. And as they headed for it, uh, and as the conflict began with the settled tribes, the peasants, the settled tribes, basically said, this is our tribal land. And the nomads said, what do you mean? We are citizens, and we have a right to survive. And now, now was, there, was there ever a viable, uh, pardon my ignorance here, was, was there ever a viable way to give land to nomads, or was there a way to respect their their way of life that would have, in your opinion, would have worked out in this situation? Can you can you give land to nomads and with the expectation? Well, historically, what had happened um, under the under the Sultanate uh, was that the peasants farmed the land in particular seasons, um, and and uh, they left the land fallow, uh, usually in the dry season. Uh, the nomads would graze uh, when they would, they, they, the, the movement of the nomads would be geared to the seasonal use of the land by the peasants. Mm. So there was a, 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 a relationship and an agreement between peasants and nomads. Nobody owned the land absolutely. Mm. Um, everybody had right of access to land under particular conditions and at particular times. Uh, so that other things like, for example, gathering fruit from the land or killing game on the land may be a general right of everybody. But there was a complicated system of, 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 of rights uh, of different communities and different peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, uh, declaring absolute private right over land changed this balance, too. Now, was, that, was that a byproduct of a colonial uh, uh, influence, or was this something you had mentioned the Sultan had before decided? Was there a decision on his part, or was it the British who sort of made, uh, solidified the situation? Well, the Sultan was giving out uh, private land rights right, okay. um, and, uh, and, uh, and creating individual tenure, uh, which was inevitably in the best of the land. Um, when the British came, they abrogated all the private rights. Uh, but they didn't leave the system as it was in terms of group tenure and balance rights between different groups and communities over seasons. But they, in fact, turned the, the, the tribal land as if it were a private right of the tribe, 
turned it into an absolute property of the tribe. Um, and more than that, actually, they introduced a, a, a sort of a system of discrimination uh, because whatever the piece of land, there, were always, there was always more than one ethnic group. Uh, but the, the group which was given the land was declared the native group, and the native group was the only group with a right of access to land. Anybody else wanting to access the land had to pay a tribute of usually 10% of the proceeds. Second thing is the right of governance was restricted to the native group um, so that chiefs at different levels could only come from the native group. So what the British did was they introduced tribe as a, 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 a sort of a, a pivot for discrimination um, between groups declared native and groups declared not native even though they had been there for generations and generations. Um, just as race became a basis for discrimination in the urban areas, tribe became a basis for discrimination in the rural areas. Uh, we're speaking with Mahmoud Mamdani, and the book is Sur uh, Saviors and Survivors, Darfur Politics and the War on Terror. Uh, is, is discrimination the, the prime cause of the conflict there? Is, is that what's going on, or is it, is it more of an economic thing? Uh, why are we, you know, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking of several things. Yeah. Um, we're talking of an um, ecological economic thing, which has created greater scarcities than existed. Then we're talking of a system of discrimination, which has given uh, greater access to some groups at the expense of other groups. Now, both of these are sort of localized effects. But then we are on top of this, we are discussing a state system, the state of Sudan itself, which has also historically been the preserve of a small uh, elite. Um, and and uh, ever since independence, we have seen a struggle in different regions demanding that participation and access to power be opened up. Uh, this is how the struggle in the South began uh, and went on for decades and, in fact, was resolved with a political reform. And that political reform was uh, uh, forced the, the, the uh, sort of broader participation in power in Khartoum. So the question really is, how come Darfur cannot be settled in this particular way? And, and what would be your opinion on that? Uh, is, well, it, is it... Is it the people themselves? Are, are they refusing to, or is it something deeper than that? Well, it's something more. Um, you know, Darfur is very different. Uh, when I started studying Darfur, I realized it was very different from Rwanda, Congo, um, Angola. Uh, and, and the point of difference was that whereas all these other places sort of happened, unfolded as if in the dark of the night, Darfur was globalized sort of overnight. Uh, it became high drama. It became hyped up on the media. And I realized the reason for that was that Darfur was the focus of a domestic movement in the U.S. Yeah. Now, that movement in the U.S., uh, even though it l looks like the peace movement of the 1960s, it's a very different movement because, first, it's not a peace movement. It's a mobilization for war. If you, if you look at their slogans, uh, boots on the ground, out of Iraq, into Darfur. 
this is this is a war mobilization. Their demand is for a no-fly zone. Their demand is for an intervention from the outside. Their assumption is that the problems are internal and the solutions have to be external. Now, because of the strength of this movement, it has been able to guide U.S. foreign policy on Sudan, especially since no counter-opinion has been mobilized within the U.S. itself. And, and, and because of that, that has lent weight to those on both sides of the conflict who are not interested in a peaceful solution, because on the rebel side, it has given uh, uh, strength to those who think that if they just wait it out, power will fall in their lap. And on the government side, it has strengthened the position of those who think that any negotiation is just a subterfuge for a regime change, and therefore there should be no negotiation. So you've had hardline elements on both sides strengthened by this movement, which has called for an intervention from the outside, which would create a quagmire. Well, the, I, I've to, in my own personal um, experience of hearing anything about Darfur, goes back many years. And the first time I heard anything uh, of real substance about the situation it was framed in such a way uh, by there were some very conservative Republicans who were pushing for uh, us to get involved, uh, more actively involved uh, in the part of the United States government. Because, as they put it, the Christians were under siege from from muslim uh extremists and i is that the, is that uh, the, some part of what you're referring to when you talk about this sort of domestic politics of, of uh darfur well look the kind of uh, uh, sort of leadership which gravitated to the save darfur movement uh included those who had been involved in uh, the, the the fighting in the south mm-hmm. um, uh, christian evangelical right wing christian evangelical and uh, jewish zionist uh, leadership which had been linked to the struggle in the south and and in the south you have a leadership which is both christian and animist and and the and the regime in khartoum was was islamist uh, but in darfur that's not the case in darfur everybody is muslim but these guys just assumed that Darfur is just another version of the South and, and began to portray it as such. In the South, historically, the slave trade was an Arab slave trade. In Darfur, the slave trade historically was a four slave trade. The Sultanate of Darfur was a four Sultanate. Um, so uh, you have these important differences, but you have a movement which is uninterested in educating its constituency, the Save Darfur movement. It is interested more in Madison Avenue-style mobilizing, sort of mobilizing through the CNN effect, mobilizing through the effect of pictures. So you go to the website, uh, you will see a lot of uh, uh, illustration of atrocities, but you will never hear any discussion of why this conflict, what were the causes, what is the history, what is the politics, who is fighting whom, why. You just think that some people are congenitically Congenetic, <laughs> excuse me, uh, <laughs> genetically yeah, anyway, yeah. let's say, yeah. prone to violence. Um, and, 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 you know, you just think this is a site for evil. Well, well, well let's recognize that there, there has been a humanitarian disaster in Darfur, that, 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 that thousands of people have died. And, the, uh, and I've just 
the um, the militias that that we we hear a lot about the what were they called? I'm I'm just blanking. The out. Janjaweed. Janjaweed. Thank you. And, and there are now this is what what information I think generally uh, is out there for for the American people to absorb. The Janjaweed are responsible uh, for untold thousands of people that have been slaughtered um, because of this land grab, essentially. But I, I guess my, I would ask: Is is genocide an accurate way to describe what's going on there? Yeah, well, I want to. Yeah, that's it. Well, look, the uh, uh, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, just dismissed uh, uh, the the prosecutor's application that a genocide had been unfolding, um, but it did uphold the application uh, that that uh, a real slaughter had taken place. Um, but we need to be careful about two things. Um, one is the scale of the slaughter, and second is the fact that that slaughter came to an end in 2004. Um, the Government Accountability Office, which is a U.S. government agency, in 2006 uh, looked at different estimates of how many people had been killed at the height of this violence, which is 2003-2004. The top estimates came from Save Darfur, 400,000, and the lowest estimate was from the World Health uh, uh, Organization, which was 70,000. And uh, the GAO said that the Save Darfur figures were totally unreliable. The GAO put together a, a, a panel of 12 experts uh, with the U.S. Academy of Sciences. And they said uh, the, the Save Darfur estimates were based on unrepresentative samples generalized over large populations, and they were not reliable. Second thing they said um, is that these... The, uh, these deaths were from multiple causes, 70 to 80 percent from the effect of drought and desertification, 20 to 30 percent from direct violence. Now, there's no Chinese wall between the two because you can have somebody with dysentery, diarrhea, who is not treated because there's a conflict raging. So that can also be an indirect cause of the violence. But there are two different causes, mixed up, but two different causes. Thirdly, the the... The data shows that from 2005 onwards, the, the level of mortality went down dramatically. I was Three weeks ago, I was in Addis Ababa with an African Union panel, and the commander of the UN forces in Darfur came and testified. Uh, there are 17,400 UN troops. Every time there's a civilian death, they follow it up. They file a report, cause of the death, how many people died. According to him, throughout 2008, 1,500 civilians died of violence. Out of these, 900 died as a result of conflict between the government, including the Janjaweed, and the rebel movements. 600 died in conflicts between nomadic groups over pasture land. Mm -hmm. Now, this level of death is lower than what the UN would classify as an emergency. So the hype hides from us the fact that the level of death has not been an emergency since 2005. The level of uprooting of people, the IDPs, the inter internally displaced people, roughly about 2 million. Now, that is an emergency which needs addressing. But it's not the worst emergency in the world. The IDPs in Iraq are 4 million. You know, there, there are big conflicts raging, and this is one of the, the yeah. big issues. I mean, and in terms of IDPs, internally displaced people, Iraq, Turkey, 
Colombia. There are, are a number of countries in the world that the on the scale that we have no. It's unimaginable. Um, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Mahmoud Mandani, and the book is Saviors and Survivors. Um, I was wondering, you just finished your book tour. Uh, did people from uh, Save Darfur Coalition approach you at all during the tour? Have you had any uh, uh, run-ins with people regarding what you're saying? Well, I'm I'm sort of in the middle of the book tour because I teach Mondays and Tuesdays, uh-huh. uh, so I come back to base and then yeah. I <laughs> go out on Wednesday. Wow! Uh, but I had uh, um, I did have uh, uh, um, Save Darfur people in my audience. In, uh, from the leadership or from their headquarters in Washington, D.C. I gave a talk at Howard University. Yeah. Um, and basically their main objection was that I hadn't talked to Save Darfur people, and I said I had actually um, talked to one person from their headquarters, and I had talked to the head of their group in Sudan itself. Um, and I had been contacted by another person from their headquarters asking, you know, who put me in touch with these fellows in Sudan when I went there to, you know, to, so, so that I could speak to them. Um, but otherwise, this evening, tonight, I'm having a debate with John Pendergast at, uh, at Columbia. Um, so that will be the first... Uh, now, now, John, was, uh, was he a New York Times reporter? Am I got that? Yes. No, John, John was uh, uh, um, in Save Darfur. He was head of ICG, International Crisis okay. Group. Okay. Um, and now he heads this thing called Enough, which is an anti-genocide mobilization, and he's becoming very active on Congo. And he's taking the same skills uh, uh, used in the Darfur mobilization to Congo, which skills, unfortunately, include okay. obscuring the causes of the conflict. Right. Um, and and, uh, and and claiming that solutions have to be external. I, I, th- I, I, I think the, the, the distinction needs to be made here is that we're, you're not saying, and I, think, and I hope the audience isn't hearing, that this isn't a situation that somehow doesn't need to be uh, remedied or, looked or, or seen as the potential for uh, uh, many thousands of people dying. It's certainly a situation that bears some attention. But I think what you've been saying here is that we have been sort of misled as to the causes and the degree to which it's happening or happened. Well, I think we need to discuss uh, even even possible solution uh, be, because uh, the the Save Darfur paradigm is is sort of the Nuremberg paradigm. It's the paradigm of. Uh, of a conflict which has ended. Uh, one side is victorious, the other side is defeated, uh, and then you take perpetrators to court um, and, and, and you call for criminal justice. Um, but, but the Nuremberg uh, model simply cannot apply because this conflict has not ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, to apply the Nuremberg model, you'd have to call for victory, which would mean endless uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 victims and, 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 and injuries. Um, but there's a counter model, and I think the counter model comes from the African experience, particularly the experience of ending apartheid, uh, and the experience of, you know, where conflicts are ongoing. How do you stop the conflict? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how do you, uh, uh, because 
the, the very leadership on the other side, which you, you, you would take to court, is the very leadership you need to convince that it's in, it's in their interest to stop the conflict. Mm-hmm. So the African solution has been to say uh, there, will be no, there will be no criminal justice, no court proceedings, provided you agree to political reform provided you address the grievances. So in South Africa, there was no criminal justice, but apartheid was ended, and a, and a, and a second chance given to, to the living. Mm-hmm. That same solution was applied in Mozambique, where uh, Renamo was kidnapping children and, 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 and turning these same children into perpetrators. So you had children who were both victims and perpetrators. Same thing in northern Uganda, same thing in Sierra Leone with the RUF. The Mozambique conflict was ended with the leadership of Renamo sitting in parliament today rather than in court or in jail. Um, the same solution was applied in South Sudan. There were no court cases, but there was a political reform. So why not Darfur? That's my, that's my question. Mm-hmm. How come these guys want to treat Darfur so differently uh, as if it were a holocaust rather than one of many conflicts on the African continent, right. uh, which we have learned how to address. Yeah. Well, obviously, there, I, I, we're running out of time, and I, I, there's one other subject I want to get to, but obviously there seems to be a strategic reason, is what I'm hearing, and sort of the, the background in all this. There is something about this part of the world that is giving political capital well, I think the strategic reason is that it is Darfur's misfortune that this round of conflict began in 2003 after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the movement in the U.S., the Save Darfur movement, has just seamlessly gotten incorporated into the war on terror, um, where, where, where the assumption is not only that the problem is violence, but also that the solution is violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sort of, if only we can muster more violence, we would end the other side's mm-hmm. violence. Uh, well, that's a tragedy. Well, uh, Mahmoud Mamtani, the, uh, the book is Savers and Survivors. I one quick question. I, I hope there's a quick answer for it. The situation in Afghanistan uh, is becoming increasing, and Pakistan is increasingly more destabilized because of the uh, use by the United States military of these drones. Uh, we're hearing reports of, of a million people being displaced in Pakistan because of the use of these weapons. Do you see the seriousness of this destabilizing influence of the, these drone attacks? Yes, I, I cannot figure out for the life of me uh, what the justification for the drones is. I mean, the stated justification is that they are aimed at uh, uh, in, in, in individual leadership in the, in the Taliban or in al-Qaeda, but uh, what is called the collateral damage uh, is is enormous. I mean, imagine if you if you're a villager on the ground and you're sandwiched between the Taliban on the ground and the drones from the sky. Uh, you 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 have only one way to go, with, which is with the Taliban. If you join the Taliban, you can you can protect your village. Uh, you 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 can you can negotiate a number of things. There's nothing to negotiate with the drones. And, and the Taliban must have a degree of legitimacy because it's on the ground. The drones are coming from elsewhere. Well, um, well, my question, my main question in all of this is, how is it that we assume the authority to violate a sovereign country uh, with, the, with the use of these weapons and not fear any consequences for... This is a clear violation of the sovereign territory of Pakistan. 
It yeah. is a it is a very clear violation, and not only that, it is a flouting of what should have been historical wisdom from the Vietnam conflict. I mean, this is so much like Cambodia, um, and 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 the results, I'm afraid, are not going to be any better. Perhaps even worse. There's already talk that Afghanistan will be this administration's Vietnam. So I think that's an analogy that uh, that unfortunately is is accurate. Mahmoud, I want to thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. Again, the book is Saviors and Survivors. Mahmoud Mamdani, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week... I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.